Are any of you like me? You have bookshelves full of books that you bought but have not read. Books that you see in the store and you just have to have them. So you buy them and you take them home, but then you're not driven enough to open them and start reading them. So they sit there for years until their time comes, until their name is called out. I have a book like that. It's this blue book that's been on my shelf for almost 20 years. It's called Conversations with Kurt Vonnegut. And that's exactly what it is. It's a book of conversations with Kurt Vonnegut, a collection of interviews with Kurt Vonnegut. Well, one day over a year ago, I finally pulled that book off the shelf and read it. And since that time, there's been one thing in it that has stuck in my mind like a splinter. It's one little offhand joke that Vonnegut makes in a 1987 interview with the South Carolina Review called A Skull Session with Kurt Vonnegut. The interviewer, Hank Neuer, asked Vonnegut, would it be a good thing if authors were allowed to recall their mistakes the way Detroit automakers recall cars? And Vonnegut says, you know they used to catch people in the Louvre, painters, touching up their own work. This episode begins a shift in this new format, just a little bit to the left. I want to start all of these episodes with questions, questions from you guys, that I'm going to go out and I'm going to find the answers. Questions about your creativity, questions how to break through, questions how to make more or to be more satisfied. But first, before I get those questions from you, I'm starting with a few questions of my own. And my question is right in that quote. How do we know when something is done? How do we know when something is complete? How do we know when we can sign it and walk away? But before I could answer that question, I had to know if what Vonnegut says is true. So I sent an email to the Louvre and I asked them, and I've asked my friend Gisela to read the reply. Dear Chad Hall, until the 19th century, an artist could only be exhibited at the Louvre after his death. Exception to the Salon. The only moment when living artists were exhibited at the Louvre, the Salon was a contemporary artist presentation of that time. But following the curatorial departments, I have questioned for you. There's no trace of this during the Salon at the Louvre. Apparently, it occurred at the Luxembourg Museum, which does not exist anymore in that form, where living artists were exhibited before their death and then before the Louvre. All my best, Sophie Grange, chef du service de presse Musée de Louvre. Think of that image. Think of a famous painter, a painter that you admire. Someone you think is realms above you. And now imagine them in an art gallery where their work is already hung on the wall, sneaking in with a paintbrush and touching things up. I think the best way for me to go about answering these questions is to do a mix of research, pulling books off the shelf like I've already done, 
but also to talk to people that I know, creative people, people that are out there doing it, that maybe have better answers than I can find. I had the opportunity several months ago while he was on tour to sit down with my friend, John Miller. My name is John Miller. I'm a singer-songwriter. I play under the name The Holy Dark. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I just put out a new record called Pretty Little Bird on Dodgeball Records. And one of the questions that I asked John was, how do you know when an album is done? How do you know when you have enough songs? Oh, man. Um, I think that more... How I start and finish a record and how I kind of seal the whole package up is more like music and dynamic uh, focused and less storyline and lyrics. If it never leaves me, there isn't really a resolve and it, it would be disingenuous to myself to like force one because it's just not done. You know, it's not over. I can't do that. So for me, I can only really start and really finish something musically. So it has to just be by structure. So like the record Pretty Little Bird, it starts off just like just acoustic guitar and vocals. And it's just like kind of really slow and it's like an octave lower and singing with like doubled vocals. It sounds very like kind of like Elliott Smith-esque, but then like blows up into this huge, big, like kind of more epic song. Whereas you go to the very end of the record and everywhere in between is, is kind of a good mix of like a lot of high energy and then like subtle stuff and like kind of playing around with new ideas. And then you get to the end and it's sort of like this musical resolve where it's like a slower song. It's like really ambient and kind of flowy and interesting. It has like a big like lyrical ending where you're kind of like screaming something like you really want that point to get across and just leaving them on that, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, yeah, just kind of figuring out ways to like, to get that emotional response from a record, whether it's about what you're singing about or it's just the music and the dynamics and how it all makes you feel when you listen to it, I try to focus more on that. And that's, at least for Pretty Little Bird, that's kind of how I started and finished the album. And so how do you know, what, is there a switch in your head that goes off, I've written enough songs? More or less, yeah. Yeah, you So know, it's a feel thing. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah, it's, it's intuitive. Like you can look at something and go, that's a full record. Originally, I wanted Pretty Little Bird to either be like a long record with like 18 songs, I know, or or I wanted to do like like a double record type of thing. And then once we got the ball rolling and everything, it just kind of felt right to let it be its own thing. It has the full band stuff, it has the acoustic stuff, and it kind of encompasses the whole idea of like maybe how I want to pursue music going forward as the Holy Dark. And it just kind of felt right that way. You know, I didn't want to come out of the gate with a new band name and just like too much content at once. It just kind of felt, I don't know, it just felt more organic that way. It's just natural. There's another book that I have on my shelf, except this is one that I've read many, many times. It's a small little book called The Essential Whitman, and it's a selection of Walt Whitman poems by a man named Galway Kinnell. And as much as I would have liked to interview Galway for this episode, unfortunately he is no longer with us. So we will have to settle for me reading a few parts of this introduction. 
where he talks about Walt Whitman's experience with his most famous book, Leaves of Grass. Leaves of Grass came out in six editions. Each time Whitman added new poems, enlarging the book from 12 poems in 1855 to 383 in 1892. He also revised the poems already present. Many of the revisions could be called fine-tuning, but quite a number went to the very heart of the poems. A poem called Great Are the Myths in successive editions was revised, lengthened, shortened, and at last dropped. Whitman took passages from one poem and put them in another. He made several poems from one poem, one poem from several. Song of Myself did not reach final form until 26 years after first publication. So while, as John Miller says, the sense of done is something natural, something that comes from within you, we can also let this quest for perfectionism skew that whatever part of us that can sense that completeness. To quote Kinnell again on Whitman, Whitman spent the last part of his life trying to get his book right. He kept working over those old poems, as Lady Gregory said of Yeats, as if he were in competition for eternity. As Whitman grew older, not only did his creative powers wane, but his critical faculties became erratic, and he was never able to achieve that last goal and make a perfect leaves of grass. On the contrary, the more he searched for perfection, the further away it went. So how do we rein that in? How do we pull in that perfectionism, that broken sensor? And since we started this episode talking about painters, I thought it would be good for us to get the perspective of a living painter. And I thought it would be even more interesting to ask someone who works in abstractions. Or maybe it is a little bit more difficult to tell when something is done. Okay, can you hear me okay? I hear you great. This is Lou Birmingham, and you'll have to forgive me for the beeping in the recording. It's my fault for not knowing how to use my tools. Lou Birmingham here. I do art. Mostly two-dimensionally is what I'm known for as a painter, uh, mostly for my abstract work, although I do a lot of other work, which I usually don't show, uh, which is not as abstract. I also have done some installations, so that's three-dimensional. And um, I'm interested in exploring uh, the boundaries between what we perceive as reality, our consciousness, and um, going beyond that if we can. And how do you know when you are making something that doesn't mimic something else? That already exists in the world when you're creating something that only exists in your head or your heart how do you know when that is complete well that actually that's an excellent question I, I might say this by the way before i delve into abstraction even if you are um, uh, an artist who does representational work um you know many artists work for a long time on a piece and it might look done to the um to the observer or the audience, but the artist might feel it's not done for reasons beyond technique. 
getting back to your original question, when do I creatively know when a piece is done? Honestly, I get a gut feeling like right solar plexus, and that tells me the piece is done. And until I feel that, I actually physically feel that, it's not done. And I've had people walk in the studio going, wow, that piece is done. And I'll go, no, it's not. And they go, well, how do you know? I go, because it's 90% done, but it's not 100% done. Sometimes I've gotten to have a piece be 80% done, but it was flawed. I knew I couldn't keep, uh, the, the more I worked on it, less it would be finished. So what I do, uh, the solution for me for that is I will generally paint out the whole thing white again. And I'll start over. And I always find that the second time I start over, I'll be able to really delve into it and I'll finish the piece. So for me, to give you a definitive answer, the piece is done when I get this gut level feeling that it's done. I mean, it just in a way to me and tells me it's done and I feel it in my body. And that's the way I, I, I sense it. And how do we avoid perfectionism? How do we avoid continually looking for a feeling of done that may not always come? The only perfection is in nature. That's the perfect artist. Um, as far as we as humans, um, you know, seek to do your best, but I don't know if you're going to seek perfection because, like I said, only nature is perfect. Don't be precious about your work. What I mean by that is this. Say you've got it halfway done and you think it's going pretty well and then you kind of get stuck. Or say you're 75% done and and you really like it, but you're totally stuck. That's when you have to figure, oh, I'm being too precious with this. This is when you can paint an area or if you don't want to paint it out, you just sort of, you know, change it. Um, don't be afraid to change it. Don't hold on to something just because a part of the whole is working. Um, so don't be precious with your work. You're too precious. I'm reminded of two things in what Lou says there. I'm reminded of Stephen King's often quoted line, kill your darlings. And I'm also reminded of Steve Jobs who said, real artist ship. Because this sense of done, whether we feel it in our solar plexus, as Lou does, or it's just something that we can see from the structure that tells us something is complete, it seems to me ultimately, this sense of done is a choice. It is an acceptance. It is a knowing of what this thing that we are creating is and being able to say, I think that's it. But in that, there is also the acceptance of the imperfections, of the ways that it did not achieve this imaginary ideal. For me, I think that some of the greatest things in the world have been made by people who failed to make the thing that they set out to make. The Beatles wanted nothing more than to sound exactly like Little Richard or Jerry Lee Lewis, but they failed. And what they made ended up being something greater. 
artists in Jamaica wanted nothing more than to sound like American R&B and soul acts, but they didn't have the instruments or the recording. And what ended up happening instead was they created reggae. And Walt Whitman? Even Walt Whitman eventually had to accept this. At the end of his life, he said, in the long run, the world will do what it pleases with my book. Even Walt Whitman knew it was time to close the book. It was time to let the painting hang. I highly recommend that you guys check out all of our guests on the show today. I will put links for all of them in the description below. You can check out Gisela's Instagram, which has some amazing nature photography. You can check out John Miller and find him on Spotify and Apple Music and all kinds of other places. You can check out Lou Birmingham and his art on his website. And lastly, you can check out the books that I mentioned if they sounded interesting to you. And in closing this episode, I hope you guys find this new direction interesting. Because I can't do it without you. I can't do it without your questions. You can send me a question as an audio message on Anchor. Or you can record an audio message and email it to randombadassery at gmail.com. Or you can just type it up if you don't want to do audio. You can tweet me at randombadassery. You can Instagram me at randombadassery. However you want send me those questions and until next time don't forget we all have creative minds oh.